For the last uh, couple of weeks, probably like a lot of you, I've discovered that uh, 102.5 uh, FM KEZK is playing only Christmas music. Uh, and so I've kind of put that station on in my car and uh, have uh, purposely been seeking to get in the mood for the holidays and singing the Christmas carols. I sing best with the windows rolled up, the volume up real loud so nobody can actually hear my, my voice. Uh, and so I've, I've uh, been kind of motivating myself to begin to think about Christmas and, and the joy of this season. And, you know, uh, one of the problems uh, with this is as you, as you sing these songs and as you think about uh, what you're saying in these songs, uh, you begin to realize that some of what you're singing doesn't quite match up reality. You know, when, when Andy Williams is singing, this is the most wonderful time of the year, uh, and you look at what's transpired, uh, not only in the U.S., but around the world, you, you kind of come to a different conclusion. Uh, you know, the terrorism in Mumbai with 170-plus uh, innocent victims, men, women, and children, gunned down uh, in the name of radical Islam. Uh, when you look at the conflicts on the continent of Africa and Angola and Chad and the Sudan and Rwanda, and you see literally hundreds of thousands of people being displaced from their homes and forced to be refugees. And you see what, what comes of all of that in the, in the famine uh, and the disease. Uh, it's hard to... Uh, whistle along with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, we're now, we've officially announced, the government officially announced, as the government is apt to catch up with the rest of us long after we know the truth, uh, we're in an economic recession. And somebody in Washington finally figured that out and has passed that information on to us as if we didn't know. Uh, strife abounds between nations, between people groups, and, and strife even abounds in our own families, in our, in our own homes. Uh, you all... Uh, uh, re, were, were reintroduced last week to my good friend Chuck Nieder, and uh, one of his sons, his oldest son Adam, has two daughters, and uh, I've known Adam since he was a, a little guy, probably in fourth or fifth grade, so it's fun to watch Adam now be a dad, and he talked about uh, an experience they had at the dinner table recently with Claire and Mary, their two girls. Claire's the older daughter. Uh, she's about 10, and Mary's about six, and uh, if, you, uh, if you have daughters who are uh, anywhere between probably about four or five uh, or the teenage years, you've probably been in the store in the mall called Claire's, which is a little jewelry store, kind of trinket store, a lot of costume jewelry and things like that for, for young girls to, you know, kind of get, get sucked into that whole world. And I'm not going to talk about that this morning. Uh, but um, uh, they were sitting at the dinner table and Claire was picking on Mary. And Claire was giving Mary a real hard time. And Mary tends to be the one that has a little softer soul. And, and she was kind of sitting there taking it and just had her head down. And, and finally, Mary had, had had enough of Claire's nonsense. And she looked across the table and she said, you are named for a store in the mall. I am named for the mother of God. <laughs> Let's hear it for Mary. That's right. <laughs> we can laugh at that kind of immaturity and strife in our families, but we all know uh, what it's like to drive to church in silence because we can't speak to our spouse because the anger is simmering right there below the surface. That's why I became a pastor, so I wouldn't have to ride to church with my family. <laughs> it's at these times where Peace on earth sounds like a nice song Jeff was mentioning earlier, uh, but peace remains an elusive target just outside of our grasp. Green Tree Community Church is not spared 
from these struggles. I am going to uh, stand beside Tom and Becky Wood tomorrow morning as we bury Tom's father, and that will be my fourth funeral in three weeks. We are uh, sitting by the phone anxiously awaiting a phone call from Lisa Hasse, our executive administrator, who is even more anxiously sitting by the bedside of her dying father in Chicago. Our marriages struggle just like other people's marriages. Our children rebel just like other children's people rebel. We have personal, personal addictions that wreak havoc in our own lives. Our spiritual growth at times seems painfully slow or non-existent. And so maybe you like me this morning sometimes say, excuse me if I don't feel like singing, it's a holly jolly Christmas. The question that I want to raise this morning, and I'm not going to answer, but rather I'm introducing this morning a, a, a four-part series that will end on Christmas Eve. Uh, but I want to raise the question, is there hope for us? Is there hope for this fallen and broken world? Uh, in our Advent series, I'm going to kind of steal from Charles Dickens a little bit, uh, who had a uh, visitor to uh, his character, Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, and visitor uh, Jacob Marley, his old business partner, told him he's going to be visited by three ghosts, the ghosts of Christmas past, uh, the ghosts of Christmas present, and the ghosts of Christmas future. And so I'm going to kind of play off of that a little bit for the next three and a half weeks. This morning, we're going to consider the promise of Christmas past. Next week, we're going to talk about the reality of Christmas present, and then uh, on the 21st and on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about, talk about the hope of Christmas future, uh, because it's important that we understand the times in which we live. It's important that we understand how to apply God's word to our lives in what may seem at times, even around Christmas, uh, to be somewhat of a hopeless world. With that in mind, this morning, we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, we're going to look at the first five verses of this passage and a uh, probably somewhat familiar uh, to you, uh, a prophecy uh, that speaks of the coming Messiah. So hear the word of God as we consider whether or not there is hope, as we consider this promise of Christmas past in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God as spoken through the prophet. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be a belt on his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Will you pray together with me? Father, as we approach Christmas, uh, in troubling times, sometimes it is difficult to uh, get in the mood, so to speak. Yet, Father, our lives are not about being in this mood or that mood or celebrating this holiday or that holiday. In many ways, a lot of what we will experience in the next two or three weeks is a man-made and contrived to get the economy moving, to get us to spend and consume. And yet, Father, that while we enjoy gift-giving and there's a lot of very positive things that come out of that, there's something that rings hollow and we long for something more. 
something deeper, something that will speak truth into our souls, something that will light our darkness, something that will give us a purpose and a hope, something will uh, speak the truth into our lives when we hear so many falsehoods and so many misconceptions and so many lies. And so, Lord, as we look at this promise this morning, I pray that uh, you would use these words, not my words, Lord. They're of no importance and no consequence. It is only your eternal word that will stand forever. It is only your eternal word that will exist into eternity. Uh, We will take nothing out of this world except your truth. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would penetrate our hearts and our souls and our minds, and you would teach us what you want us to know. Father, forgive me for my sin. Help me not stand in the way of what you want to say to your people this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This morning is going to be just slightly different, and and you may not even notice the nuance, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, Not going to be a whole lot of application this morning. I'm not going to give you much, okay, now that we've studied this, what does it mean or how do you apply it? Uh, It's not because there is an application from this text. I think there's a tremendous amount of application from this text. Uh, But I want to simply raise a couple of questions with you this morning, hopefully send you away thinking about this text, pondering it, and pondering what the application may be uh, for you, uh, for your family, uh, as we think about the uh, promise of Christmas past. And and as I said, these these sermons are going to kind of build on one after the other, so I'm going to try and get you to curiosity enough arouse that you'll come back next Sunday and and continue on the journey uh, with us. What about this promise of Christmas past? Well, let me give you the context of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is an old man. Uh, Isaiah has seen the decline of the nation uh, of Israel. It's already split and been divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel uh, has ceased to exist as it was originally intended. Uh, It's been divided and it's been conquered. And basically now the people of Israel and Judah, their their nation, their towns, their villages, their cities, uh, lay in ruins. Uh, The land is virtually empty. Uh, There is only a remnant of people, only a handful of people who were the original inhabitants of the people of Israel that are left. Uh, Everybody who is is worth anything at all uh, as far as being able to do physical labor or in, in any other way can be productive has been taken into exile. Uh, by the conquering Assyrian armies. And we face a time as we read chapter 11 of Isaiah that's hopeless as far as the people of Israel are concerned. Isaiah has witnessed the destruction of his homeland. And now as an old, old man, he enters into this promise with these people. And that's where we find uh, the, the nation of Israel, so to speak, uh, this morning as we look at this passage. And it's important that you note that that at the moment of struggle, at the moment of deepest despair, God speaks his word of promise into our lives. I want to examine this promise this morning. The first thing I want you, I'm going to give you four observations about this promise. The first one is this. It is a royal and divine promise. Look at verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root roots shall bear fruit. Now, uh, you probably remember, but if you don't, Jesse was the father of King David. David was, was uh, in power. Uh, he took power from Saul. God passed it on, took it from Saul, and gave it 
to David and made him king over all of Israel. And under David's uh, 40 years as king, Israel grew in prominence, in international prominence. Uh, They conquered lands. Uh, David was the apple of God's eye. He was the one uh, through whom God uh, brought about many of the promises that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so when we talk about uh, something coming from Jesse, we're talking about the father of the great king. Uh, he was the object of God's promises. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you read uh, this conversation between God and David, one of the things that God says to David is, there will always be a son of yours sitting on the throne. Your kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And so we see right off the bat that there's a great uh, a great promise that, that foreshadows this in 2 Samuel that we're now being reminded of by Isaiah. There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Why does Isaiah say the stump of Jesse? Well, it's because the Davidic kingdom has failed miserably. The best thing you can say about those who follow David, his sons, his grandsons, his great-grandsons, and on down the line, the best thing you can say about those guys is the one who was king was better than the next guy. He was worse than the guy that, that was preceded him. But if you read through First uh, and Second Kings, almost every new king is introduced this way. And this king did evil in the eyes of the Lord, worse than his dad who came before him. <laughs> so the Davidic kingdom is simply going in the tank, worse and worse and worse as time goes on. And so when Isaiah says there's something that's going to happen from a stump, he uses the right word because the tree has been felled and the promise that God offered to David seems to have failed. And yet Isaiah says, just when it seems like there's no hope, just when it seems that that things have failed, the promise is renewed. There's going to be a shoot from the stump. Now, the word that the prophet chose there for the word shoot, you know, we think of as a little sapling, and that that would be the right uh, connotation, a right translation for us. But the word shoot there means that it's going to be one that is identical or superior to the one who has come before. So Isaiah isn't prophesying that there's just going to be someone who comes from David's line, but rather what he's saying is there's going to be another David. There's going to be another one who's even greater than the original David. So Isaiah is making an unbelievable promise here through the words that he chooses to use. The shoot from the stump is going to be one that actually excels and is greater than his forefather, the great King David. There's going to be a royal uh, fulfillment to this promise. But there's also a divine aspect to this when he says this, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So originally Isaiah says there's one coming from Isaiah, or there's one coming from David who's going to restore the kingdom. But then he uses this term, a branch from the root, and Jesse's roots were his forefathers who came before him. So Isaiah is actually going back before Jesse, saying there's someone who's coming who actually is preexistent before Jesse that's going to bear fruit. This branch actually supersedes Jesse's lifetime. In other words, this one who's coming is not only going to be of the lineage of Jesse, but he's also going to be of the lineage of God. He's divine. His existence didn't start when Jesse started having sons, but rather the one who's coming is actually the root from which Jesse's line sprang. And so we have not only a royal promise of a coming one, but we have a divine promise. And the promise is what? That his roots shall bear fruit, that the family tree will grow. It will flourish. This divine and human one 
will bring about redemption, restoration, and healing. So Isaiah in verse 1 starts off with an amazing promise. And so you might ask yourself the question, well, how is that going to (laughs) happen? Is this possible? I mean, just you look at the time and place in which Isaiah lived, and he said it, it doesn't seem like this will ever happen. And we have to remind ourselves that prophecy isn't limited to one particular space and one particular time. Prophecy can have multiple fulfillments. And so the prophet goes on to explain how this is going to happen. Look at verse 2, and this spirit-empowered promise. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Let me stop there for just a second. And we spend so much time in the New Testament that we forget that uh, the day of Pentecost ushered in a new ministry of the Holy Spirit. Up until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell like he does today everyone who was a believer in God. The Old Testament is very, very specific that there were certain times and certain occasions and certain individuals that the Holy Spirit would would fill in a very powerful and substantial way to bring about a very specific end result that God intended. I'll give you the, the best example in the whole Old Testament. Judges 13 through 16, there's a guy named Samson. You might remember Samson and Delilah, okay? Samson is probably the best picture in the Old Testament of, of, of when we read it of God saying, and the Spirit filled Samson and certain amazing things happened. He had superhuman strength. So if you want to get a, just a, a microcosm of, of what uh, the, the theology of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is, read Judges 13 through 16. It'll take you 15 minutes. When we look at this word, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In the Old Testament, pre-day of Pentecost, you ought to underline that with red. You ought to circle that. You ought to highlight that because that means something extraordinary is going to happen. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of of the Lord. God's presence in this second David, who's going to come and be superior to the first, is described in three pairs of amazing character traits, wisdom and understanding, counsel and power, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Let me talk about each one of those just very briefly. Wisdom and understanding has the, the, the connotation of a judicial and governmental role. This is a person who is a ruler who is able to see the heart of the matter clearly and judge fairly. And so when we think of of wisdom and understanding, we don't naturally put it in the context of the government. In fact, a lot of people might argue that wisdom and understanding and the government were at polar opposites. I'm not going to get into that this morning. but But what Isaiah is saying is that this one is coming to rule, and the way in which he carries out his judicial responsibilities, the way in which he covers out his responsibility of of ruling and leading the people will be that he will have great understanding. He will see this very clearly, and because of that, he will judge fairly. So there's there's a sense of his character being unblemished. Then he says he will also have the spirit of counsel and power. Now, Isaiah kind of takes a right turn here, and he begins to talk in militaristic terms. He's talking about one who is a good uh, at strategy, at planning, and he's also capable of executing that strategy in order to achieve uh, a right outcome. It's the ability to see how the troops should be lined up, and then he's able to lead the troops into battle to victory. This is a unique gift that that not very many people have. Most military commanders will tell you that there's more reaction on the battlefield than than actually pre-planning. 
Uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten those little cards at the, at the uh, bookstore or at the, um, at the little gift shops where it gets your birthday on it and then you can read all the stuff that's happened on your birthday. Have you ever gotten one of those cards? Uh, or the year that you were born. I was born in 1959 and 1959 Hawaii and Alaska both became states and some other stuff happened that's, that's kind of cool. But January 30th is my birthday. And I, and, I, and I looked at this card that I picked up and it didn't really have anything special that actually happened on January 30th. So being the egotistical jerk that I am, I wasn't satisfied with that. Something great had to happen on January 30th. So I went and I did some research. And I went to, you know, on the li- online and started studying around. And you know what I found out happened? On January 30th in 1933, Adolf Hitler took over Germany. <laughs> That's my birthday. Thank you very much. <laughs> but something else happened on January 30th in 1933. There was a somewhat obscure mid-level politician in London, England, who wrote this in his diary on that day. Hitler has come to power. War is inevitable. Great Britain must prepare. Winston Churchill. Six years later, that man would lead Great Britain and ultimately, in many senses, lead the world to victory over the tyranny and the awfulness of Nazi Germany. That's council. <laughs> and along with that council came the power as a prime minister to carry that out. And, and Isaiah says, this one who is coming, he has a military wisdom and he has a military might to be able to not only withstand his enemies, but to lead his people triumphantly. And then he says he will also have a knowledge and fear of the Lord. That's the third of these, of these three pairs. Knowledge simply means truth applied. Uh, when I was a little kid and I was about this high to the stove, I saw the real bright coils on the stove, and I thought, I wonder what that's all about. And I put my hand, <laughs> and, and I learned what that was all about as I pulled it off pretty quickly and had nice black rings across my, my hands. But I then became a knowledgeable four-year-old, <laughs> and I never once again put my hand on that bright, shiny coil on the stove. Truth applied. This one who comes is going to have knowledge. He's going to take the truth as he sees it and applies it. And the way in which he's going to apply it is in his relationship with God. This fear of the Lord is is a life of complete trust. It's a life of complete obedience to God. This Messiah who is coming is going to be in an intimate relationship with God, and he's going to live accordingly. He's never going to misstep. He's never going to sin. He's never going to say, okay, God wants me to go in this direction. I hear that. I get it. I understand it. But I'm going to go in this direction. This one who is promised is empowered by the Spirit to such a degree that he will always and only trust and obey his heavenly Father. This is a hefty promise in verses 1 and 2. This is a striking figure in this personality that is described to us by Isaiah. The question now becomes, how will this shoot of Jesse, how will he engage in uh, fulfilling these promises? We see the royal and divine aspects of this promise. We see that it's spirit-empowered, and now I want to look at the inward character of the promise. Look at the first part of verse 3. Not only will he have the fear of the Lord, but his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Uh, this idea of delight, this word in the Hebrew, literally, if you boil it down to what its, its most core meaning is, it's literally the word scent, S-C-E-N-T, like you smell something. And the idea behind this, this word is this, uh, that there's a, a pleasing aroma 
in the house. Okay, if there's a pleasing aroma in the house, uh, what, is it, what does it cause uh, within you? It causes you to, to react with some kind of, some kind of pleasure. You know, that, that smell reminds you of something. Uh, Katie was home last week for Thanksgiving, uh, and she said to me, Dad, uh, before she left, she goes, Dad, we're ramping up for Christmas. And I said, Katie, what does it mean that we're ramping up for Christmas? She said, Dad, we're not going to have any sweets before December the 25th. And I said, Katie, who is it that isn't going to have any sweets before December the 25th? And she said, Dad, that would be you. You're ramping up to Christmas. We're going to work on your, on your physical health just a little bit. Now, that's really a great theory. <laughs> And so far, I've made it. <laughs> but I know this week and next week, my mom's going to start baking Christmas cookies. <laughs> and I know when I walk into her kitchen, I am going to delight in my mom. I'm going to smell the aroma. And it's going to remind me of my childhood when I weighed 115 pounds soaking wet and could eat 30 cookies and not even feel the effect whatsoever. And I'm going to be tempted to go in that direction. That's that word, delight. It's something that arouses within you a joy and a passion and a desire. And when we see this delight in the fear of the Lord, what Isaiah is telling us about this one who comes is that he always interacts positively with God's character and with God's calling. There won't come a day when he doesn't find joy in his relationship with his heavenly father, but there also will never come a day when he'll back off of that which God intended for his purpose, for his ministry, and for his life. There will never be any discord in this relationship. Think about that if you're, if you're a mom or a dad this morning. Think about what it would be like to have a child who never disagrees with you. You know, I think about it, I came downstairs the other day and said, you know, guys, uh, we got to rake the leaves, you know, starting to kind of get away from us. Think about if they had said, dad, we're way ahead of you. <laughs> We've already gotten the blowers out and the rakes out. Dad, you sit down and have a cup of coffee. We're going to go out. We just love you so much. We're just going to go out and take care of, of all the leaves. You just don't give it another thought. What if that happened every day of your life, all the time you interacted with your kids? You know, you'd be, you'd be going, I, I think maybe I'm having an out-of-body experience. And yet that's how Isaiah describes the inward character of this promise, that this is a, this is a coming king who looks at his relationship with God and delights in it, and there's never discord. There's never any interruption in their perfect relationship. But there's one other aspect because up till now, it sounds pretty good. But there's one other aspect, not only the inward character of the promise, but I want you to see in verses, the rest of uh, verse 3 through verse 5, the outward manifestation of this promise. Let's begin with the second half of verse 3. It says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. His relationship with God is the filter through which all judgments will be rendered. This Messiah's perspective is based upon God's righteousness, not man's outward actions. He will be perfectly consistent, never influenced inappropriately. Think about that for just a minute. This Messiah, this King is coming to institute the perfect divine rule of God. There will never be any way in which there is inconsistency. He will never play favorites. He will never say, I'm taking this one over that one. He won't accept a bribe. He won't accept excuses. He will say, what is God's righteousness? What is God's perfection? And that is the filter through which I make every decision and is the filter that I will only use to make every decision of my life. And remember that this one is coming to rule and to judge. Now, you ought to start getting just a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> 
And if you're not, you're not listening. (laughs) This king can look into your heart and see it perfectly for what it is. This king knows full well that on his own power and by his own righteousness, the guy preaching this sermon has absolutely no right to do so. This king will look into your heart and into my heart, and he'll see what's really there, not what we want people to see. We won't be able to trick him. We won't be able to fool him. We won't be able to use our influence to change his mind. We won't be able to hand him a little something under the table in order to get him to look the other way. This one will come, and he will not look at what his eyes see or listen to what his ears hear, but he will say, what is God's righteousness, what's intended here, and that is what I will follow. That's why when the wise men showed up in Bethlehem, or showed up in Jerusalem and went to King Herod, and say, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. That's why Herod got real, real nervous. <laughs> That's why Herod slaughtered the little boys under two years of age in Bethlehem after the wise men left because he knew this one who was coming. He knew the prophecies. The priests of, of, of Israel sat down and told him about these prophecies. He understood what was on the line. Do we understand? The outward manifestation will be a will be seen by this, uh, first and foremost, this relationship with God through which he filters everything. But there also is a righteous judgment. Look at verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Let's talk about this righteous judgment for just a minute. The, The word that's used there is the word for justice, which in the Hebrew literally is the word for straight. It's a word that just means straight. In other words, again, this idea of being equitable. Uh, no curves, no, no turns in the road that are unexpected. This one's rule will be even-handed to the point that he will protect the small and the oppressed. He will do what is fair uh, for the poor. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Uh, notice there he doesn't say that he'll just give a, a blind loyalty to those who are poor. He doesn't say that just because they're poor, they will get their way but rather he'll look at their circumstances just as he will look at the circumstances of the great and the influential and no one will be out of his sphere of control and care and judgment. And so for those who are being oppressed, for those who are being harmed, he will bring justice to them. But it also says something else in verse four, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. This righteous justice, this this straight path, this equitable even-handedness with which he will rule, will execute judgment upon the wicked. And notice with the breath of his mouth. Look at the power of the spoken word of God. If you read in Revelation, when it describes Jesus coming back in his second advent, which hasn't yet taken place, it describes Jesus as a, as a rider on a white horse. And the word of God is a sword that comes out of his mouth, which with, with which he destroys the ungodly. This one will come with power that has never been seen before, that simply a word will change everything. You know, when I was a, a kid, 
My mom just had to just beat the snot out of me. <laughs> my mom's a little tiny gal. She, she comes to church here a lot, and you've, a lot of you have met her. A lot of you maybe have been in her Bible study. She's a much better teacher than her son. Uh, but um, mom, would she, would, she would probably weighed 100 pounds, maybe. You know, when I got to be in fifth grade and sixth grade, you know, she would she'd take that hairbrush or whatever, and she would, she'd just wail on me. You know, and I'd just kind of pretend to cry a little bit, but really kind of be laughing inside. And, 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 you know, if your child's ever done that, it just, you know, infuriates you more, and you try harder, and, it, you know, and I'm just like, you know, mom can't feel that. You know, try a little bit harder. <laughs> but dad would come home. <laughs> As dads are wont to do. You know what? I never remember getting a spanking from my dad. I can't tell you one time my dad ever laid a hand on me, except when he broke the refrigerator with me and we were throwing rocks at trains. But that's a story for another day. You know why he never had to lay a hand on me? Because my dad would come in, and he'd have a little conversation with my mom. <laughs> and then I'd hear one word, Tom. And that was it. <laughs> All bets were off. I was doing whatever I was told. <laughs> Games were over. No more messing around. That's all he had to say. The breath of his mouth <laughs> reminded me who was in control. The prophet Isaiah says, you want to know what kind of power you're dealing with here? You want to understand who this coming king is? He will speak and people will melt before him. All of the evil in this world will be judged by him in a moment. The last thing I want you to notice in this outward manifestation of this promise is verse 5, that this, this Messiah, here's why I've said it, he's dressed for success. That's probably a corny way to say it. But in verse 5, it says this, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Righteousness. He will act with right motives and right wisdom. He will be trustworthy. He will mean what he says. And when he acts, it will be the right thing to do faithfulness will be the belt of his loins. He will adhere to the divinely appointed course. He will not waver in his role as king, and he simply cannot be thwarted. Friends, as Isaiah stood in a very dark moment in the nation of Israel, in the history of this planet, and he looked around him and he saw the devastation, the word of the Lord came to him about a coming king and the promise from, from Christmas past, so to speak, is that the world seems to be broken and things seem to be their darkest. And at that moment, God reminds us of the truth of the situation. I think the same could be said for us this morning. The world doesn't appear to be under this kind of righteous influence. <laughs> It doesn't seem that this king has come yet, or maybe uh, this is what Jesus was supposed to do, uh, but it seems that he's failed miserably. Is the word of the prophecy true? Is the promise accurate? Or has God's word failed? Let me invite you to come back next week. We'll talk about that. Let's pray.